We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I feel the liftoff. The clock has started. Roger. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is a new and strange environment first. This suddenly finding yourself in orbit. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 32 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Ranger 4, Area 1, and Telstar 1. During 1962, there were several significant unmanned scientific missions launched. Three of them will be covered in this episode. The first is Ranger 4. As part of the pre-Apollo preparations, NASA created the Ranger series of missions to take high-quality pictures of the moon and transmit them back to Earth in real time. These pictures were not only to help select landing sites for future Apollo missions, they were also used for scientific study. The Ranger series was also to collect gamma-ray data in flight between the Earth and the moon, to study radar reflectivity of the lunar surface, and to rough land a seismometer capsule on the moon. When I say rough land, that means a kamikaze-style dive straight into the moon while sending close-range pictures back to Earth during a period of 10 minutes prior to crashing on the lunar surface. Ranger 4 was the fourth mission on the Ranger program. Rangers 1 and 2 failed at launch, and Ranger 3 missed the moon. Ranger 4 weighed 331 kilograms and was 3.1 meters high. Ranger 4 was an odd-shaped spacecraft. On top was a spherical lunar capsule 65 centimeters in diameter. Below that capsule was a monopropellant mid-course adjustment rocket engine. Below that was a retro rocket used to slow the spacecraft before landing on the moon. The base was a gold and chrome-plated hexagon 1.5 meters in diameter. A large high-gain dish antenna was attached to the base. Two wing-like solar panels were attached to the base as well and deployed early in the flight. Power was generated by 8,680 solar cells contained in the solar panels, which would charge a 1 kilowatt hour battery. Spacecraft control was provided by a solid-state computer and sequencer and an Earth Control command system. Attitude control was provided by sun and earth sensors, gyroscopes, and pitch and roll jets. The telemetry system aboard the spacecraft consisted of two 960 MHz transmitters, one at 3 watt power output and the other at 50 milliwatt power output. White paint 
gold and chrome plating and a silvered plastic sheet encasing the retro rocket furnished thermal control. The cameras on board each spacecraft were designed to provide different exposure times, fields of view, lenses, and scan rates, and they were arranged in two separate self-contained chains, each with its own power supply, timer, and transmitter. Other scientific instruments included a gamma-ray spectrometer mounted on a 1.8 meter boom, a radar altimeter, and a seismometer to be rough landed on the lunar surface. The seismometer was encased in the lunar capsule along with an amplifier, the 50 milliwatt transmitter, a turnstile antenna, and six silver cadmium batteries capable of operating the lunar capsule transmitter for 30 days. The capsule was designed to survive an impact on the moon at speeds up to 160 kilometers per hour. The launch vehicle was an Atlas Agena. The Atlas Agena was a two and a half stage rocket, with the first stage and a half being an Atlas missile similar to the one that launched John Glenn's Friendship 7. The second stage, the Agena, was a liquid-fueled rocket capable of delivering 16,000 pounds of thrust. It was 1.5 meters in diameter. The fuel used was a hypergolic fuel-slash-oxidizer combination. This meant that the engine did not need an ignition system. When the fuel and the oxidizer came in contact with each other, the engine would start. As a result, the rocket engine could be restarted multiple times in space by radio command. The mission was designed to be boosted toward the moon by the Atlas Agena, undergo one mid-course correction, and impact the lunar surface. At the appropriate altitude, the capsule was to separate and the retro rockets ignite to cushion the landing. Ranger 4 was launched on April 23, 1962. Following the launch, the command signals for the extension of the solar panels and the operation of the Sun and Earth acquisition system were never given due to an apparent failure of a timer in the spacecraft's central computer and sequencer. With no solar power to charge the main battery, the instrumentation ceased operation after 10 hours of flight. However, the spacecraft was tracked using the low-powered 50-milliwatt transmitter located in the lunar landing capsule, which used the independent battery capable of running for 30 days. After 64 hours of flight, Ranger 4 impacted the far side of the moon at 9,600 kilometers per hour on April 26, 1962. Thus, Ranger 4 became the first U.S. spacecraft to reach another celestial body. Although the spacecraft did not achieve its primary goal, the Atlas, Agena, and Ranger combination performed flawlessly for the first time. In total, there were nine space flights in the Ranger program. Only the last three were completely successful. And now... Aerial 1. In 1959, at a meeting of the Committee on Space Research, 
the United States offered other countries free rides into space for scientific projects. The United Kingdom was the first to take advantage of this offer. Later that same year, the UK's Science and Engineering Research Council met with NASA to propose the development of Area 1. By early 1960, the two countries had decided upon terms for the program's scope and which organizations would be responsible for which parts of the program. Design, construction, telemetry, and launching of the satellite was handled by the U.S. The United Kingdom was responsible for designing the equipment and the experiments to measure electron density, temperature and composition of positive ions in the ionosphere, intensity of solar radiation in the ultraviolet Lyman Alpha line, and cosmic rays. In total, there were six experiments. Aerial 1 was constructed at the Goddard Space Flight Center. The satellite was a 62-kilogram cylinder with a diameter of 58 centimeters and a height of 22 centimeters. It had multiple appendages protruding from the cylinder. Some were sensors for the experiment, some were antennas, and four held solar panels. A tape recorder and instrumentation for the experiments were housed inside the cylinder. The launch vehicle for Ariel 1 was a Thor Delta, similar to the vehicle that launched Echo 1, which was covered in Episode 20. The booster was also known as Delta DM-19, or just plain Delta. The first stage was a Thor. It was 8 feet in diameter and 90 feet tall. Its liquid fuel engine was capable of delivering 150,000 pounds of thrust. The second stage was a liquid-fueled Delta, which had been derived from the earlier Abel. It was capable of delivering 7,575 pounds of thrust. The third stage was an Altair solid fuel rocket motor that could deliver 2,760 pounds of thrust. Ariel 1 was successfully launched from Cape Canaveral Launch Complex 17A on April 26, 1962. It was placed in an elliptical orbit with a perigee of 397 kilometers and an apogee of 1,202 kilometers. It orbited the Earth every 100 minutes. Except for a failure at launch of the Solar Lyman Alpha experiment, the spacecraft operated nominally until July 9, 1962. That is when a U.S. high-altitude nuclear test, codenamed Starfish, occurred. It became apparent after the detonation that Ariel 1's solar panels had been damaged and the radiation was affecting the performance of the satellite. Several other satellites were also inadvertently damaged or destroyed by the detonation as well. Oops. Between July 9th and September 8th, 1962, the spacecraft's operation was limited. But the spacecraft was operated again from August 25, 1964 to November 9, 1964 to 
to obtain data concurrent in time with Explorer 20. Ariel 1 continued circling the planet until April 1976, when it finally decayed out of orbit and crashed to Earth. Ariel 1 made Great Britain the third country after the USSR and the USA to operate a satellite. But it was also significant because it marked the beginning of the UK's burgeoning space economy. That space economy now is worth $7.5 billion per year and supports over 70,000 jobs across a variety of the nation's industries. Congratulations to Great Britain, third nation in space. And now, Telstar 1. Before 1962, live television broadcasts from across the world were not possible. Live events such as Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953, or the first manned launch of Alan Shepard in the U.S. in 1961, could not be shown live across the Atlantic. Instead, Networks relied on tapes carried by airplanes. Telstar 1 was designed to change that. Recall from episode 20, Echo 1, the first passive communication satellite, simply received and reflected the signal to its destination. AT&T wanted to go a step further and have an active communication satellite that could receive and amplify signals, then transmit them again. Telstar 1 was a product of a multinational agreement to develop experimental satellite communications over the Atlantic Ocean. The participants included AT&T, Bell Telephone Laboratories, and NASA in the U.S., the GPO, which is the General Post Office in the U.K., and France Telecom. Bell Labs built the U.S. ground station in Andover, Maine. The main British ground station was at Goonhilly Downs, located in southwestern England. This was used by the BBC, who also served as the international coordinator. The TV conversion equipment to change the U.S. 525-line TV signal to the 405-line European TV signal was researched and developed by the BBC and located in the BBC Television Centre in London. The French ground station was at Plamour Bordeaux, located in northwestern France. The television signals that were relayed by Telstar 1 would naturally be very weak due to the satellite's low power output. This meant that ground antennas had to be huge in order to receive the signal. Bell Laboratory engineers designed a large horizontal conical horn antenna 
with a parabolic reflector at its mouth. The aperture of the antenna was 330 square meters. It was 54 meters long and weighed 340,000 kilograms. Two of these antennas were built, one in Andover, Maine, and the other in France. The antennas were housed in ray domes the size of a 14-story office building. The GPO antenna at Goonie Hills Downs in Great Britain was a conventional 26-meter diameter paraboloid. Telstar 1 was built by a Bell Labs team, which included John Robinson Pierce, who created the project, Rudy Kopner, who invented the traveling wave tube transponder used in the satellite, and James M. Early, who designed its transistors and solar panels. The satellite was spherical in shape, measuring 88 centimeters in diameter and weighing about 77 kilograms. Its dimensions were limited by what would fit on one of NASA's Thor Delta rockets, virtually the same launch vehicle used for Ariel 1. Telstar 1 was spin-stabilized and its outer surface was covered with solar cells to generate electrical power. However, the maximum power produced was only 14 watts. The satellite had one transponder to relay data, which could be used for television signals or multiplexed telephone circuits. An omnidirectional array of small antenna elements around the satellite's equator received 6 GHz microwave signals to be relayed. The transponder converted the frequency to 4 GHz, amplified the signal in the traveling wave tube, and retransmitted them omnidirectionally. There was also a helical antenna used for telecommands from the ground. Telstar 1 was successfully launched on its first try from Cape Canaveral on July 10, 1962. This made Telstar 1 the first privately sponsored space launch. The satellite was inserted into an elliptical orbit with a perigee of 952 kilometers and an apogee of 5,933 kilometers. Its orbital period was 2 hours and 37 minutes. This low elliptical orbit is much different from the modern communication satellites which are placed in circular geostationary orbits. Modern geostationary satellites have an orbital period equal to the Earth's rotation period and thus appear motionless at a fixed position in the sky to ground observers. But this was 1962 when we were still experimenting and learning. Due to its non-geosynchronous orbit, Telstar's availability for transatlantic signals was limited to 18 minutes in each orbit when the satellite passed over the Atlantic Ocean. Ground antennas had to track the satellite as it moved across the sky at up to 1.5 degrees per second. Telstar 1 relayed its first and non-public television pictures, which was a flag outside Andover, Maine's Earth Station, to Plamore, Bordeaux, on July 11, 1962. Almost two weeks later, on July 23rd, it relayed the first publicly available live transatlantic television signal. The broadcast was made possible in Europe by Eurovision and in North America by NBC, CBS, ABC, and CBC. 
The first public broadcast featured CBS's Walter Cronkite and NBC's Chet Huntley in New York and the BBC's Richard Dimbley in Brussels. The first pictures were the Statue of Liberty in New York and the Eiffel Tower in Paris. The first broadcast was to have been remarks by President John F. Kennedy, but the signal was acquired before the President was ready, so the lead-in time was filled with a short segment of a televised baseball game. From there, the video switched first to Washington, D.C., then to Cape Canaveral, then to the Seattle World's Fair, then to Quebec, and finally to Stratford, Ontario. The Washington segment included remarks by President Kennedy speaking about the price of the American dollar, which was a concern in Europe. Here's a clip from Kennedy's televised speech. History is about to be made in the science of communication among men. Technicians in Europe prepare to receive a signal from the orbiting Telstar satellite that opens this new era. This is the first formal exchange of an official transmission, a beaming of the presidential press conference to the continent where most of Europe can witness democracy at work. The president has these historic words. I understand that part of today's press conference is being relayed by the Telstar communications satellite to viewers across the Atlantic. And uh, this is another indication of the extraordinary world in which we live. This satellite must be high enough to uh, carry messages uh, from both sides of the world, which is, of course, a very essential requirement for peace. And I think this understanding, which will inevitably come from the speedier communications, is bound to uh, increase uh, the well-being and uh, security of all people here and those across the oceans. So we're glad to participate in this operation developed by private industry, launched by government, in admirable cooperation. Later that evening, Telstar One relayed the first telephone call to be transmitted through space, and it successfully transmitted faxes, data, and both live and taped television. In August of 1962, Telstar One became the first satellite used to synchronize time between two continents, bringing the United Kingdom and the United States to within one microsecond of each other. Unfortunately, Telstar 1 was also affected by the nuclear explosion of Project Starfish. The bomb energized the Earth's Van Allen belt where Telstar went into orbit. This increase in radiation combined with subsequent high-altitude blasts, including a Soviet test in October, overwhelmed Telstar's fragile transistors and it went out of service in November of 1962. After handling over 400 telephone, telegraph, facsimile, and television transmissions, it was restarted by a workaround in early January of 1963, but the additional radiation associated with its return to full sunlight once again caused a transistor failure, this time irreparably, and Telstar 1 went out of service permanently on February 21st 1963. Telstar 1 was a tremendous technical success, and the international reaction was spectacular. A U.S. information agency poll showed that Telstar was better known in Great Britain than Sputnik had been in 1957. 
Rather than launching a useless bobble, the U.S. had put into orbit a satellite that promised to tie together the ears and the eyes of the world. The satellite, in fact, was immortalized in a song in 1962. A British band called the Tornadoes created the song Tailstar, which hit number one on the U.S. billboard at the height of its popularity. Many years later, Susan Hoff, lead singer of The Bangles, wrote a 1991 song that mentioned the satellite. It was called Wishing on Tailstar. Here's the newsreel for Tailstar 1. From a ground station nestled in the mountains at Andover, Maine, a signal is sent to a speeding satellite. An historic feat that could reshape man's future. That satellite, of course, is the Telstar. 170 pounds of complex electronic equipment that receives signals beamed from Earth, magnifies them 10 billion times, and rebroadcasts them back to Earth. Pictures, telephone calls, telegraph messages, and computer data all can be handled by the orbiting device. The Telstar receives its power from batteries that are recharged by the sapphire-coated solar cells, which in turn are activated by rays from the sun. As it hurtles through space at a low point of 600 miles, to a high of 3,500 miles. The Telstar is set aloft from Cape Canaveral, atop a Thor Delta rocket in a joint industry-government effort. The Space Administration team handles the launching for AT&T, and it's a $50 million phone call for the telephone company. the orbiting of 20 to 25 satellites like the Telstar. Thus, when one passes out of range of ground stations, another will be coming into position. Presently, along with the ground station in Maine, there is a receiver and transmitter in Great Britain at Cornwall, and in France, on the coast of Brittany. Even as Telstar is launched, the French rush to complete their installation to receive a signal that night. Now the rocket climbs far into the atmosphere, and the Telstar is about to separate and orbit the Earth each two and a half hours. Starting with the sixth orbit and through the ninth, the Telstar is in range of both the U.S. and European stations, and pictures are received clearly in France, with somewhat lesser success in Britain on this first test. The signals are beamed from this 18-story dome that houses the super-sensitive horn weighing nearly 400 tons, an antenna so delicately tuned that it picks up a mere whisper of a signal from the satellite and amplifies it again billions of times for rebroadcast over cables or the air. Now comes the historic moment. A moment compared in significance with the first message sent over the telegraph. This is the first picture transmitted to outer space and received back again on Earth. Scenes of the dome at Andover are flashed across the sea, and man marks another milestone in this age of scientific miracles. So proudly it waves. In conclusion... Ranger 4, the first U.S. spacecraft to reach another celestial body, Ariel 1, the first British satellite, and Telstar 1, the first satellite to relay television, telephone, facsimiles, and computer data across the Atlantic. These were the most significant unmanned missions of the first seven months 
of 1962. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.